Hi, I'm Russ Camarda, an actor and independent filmmaker in New York. And in between the chances I get to do my own creative projects, I love to sit down with other artists and discuss how it is they do what they do. And that's sort of the, the goal for this podcast, the ACT podcast, Art, Craft, Truth. This conversation brings us around to Kate Van Devender. Kate and I are great friends. Uh, we actually met as actors in New York many years ago, but Kate is, is a TV writer, an executive producer. She's written shows for uh, Fox and CBS. She's been a staff writer on uh, half-hour network sitcoms, um, and she's become the executive producer, showrunner, uh, writer of, uh, of uh, popular YouTube series. Um, she also now runs uh, a place where creative artists can come together and learn to expand their creativity at a place called Sand Mirror Studios uh, in Los Angeles. And she's, she's helping all kinds of artists really uh, enhance their career and flourish. And like I said, Kate and I are, are great old friends, and this is a fun conversation, and I'm glad to share her with you on Art Craft Truth. Kate Van Devender. So hi, Kate. Hi. <laughs> Hi, it's great to see you. <laughs> Kate Van Devener, uh, you know, I don't pr I don't like doing this remotely, so you're my uh you're my first Zoom, but you're 3000 miles away from me in Los Angeles and I'm in New York, so we do what we can and uh, everybody is used to this now in the uh, state of affairs we're in in the world, so uh, Yeah, totally normal. You still look pretty fantastic. Uh so Aww. so Kate, you're um you're an actor, a, a screenwriter, um, comedy writer, uh, producer, director. You've done so many, an editor. You've done so many different things. And we met originally as actors. I want to say it was uh, 2002 or three or something. And we were doing, if anybody remembers the old HBO project Greenlight, where like they tried <laughs> to give indie filmmakers a, a contest. Yeah. So we met as actors doing one of those Project Greenlight things. Remember that? I sure do. You and Dan cast me, and that was my first ever uh, role on screen. I'd only done theater. <laughs> and I was trying to play it cool, like I knew what I was doing, and I didn't. But you were great. We had a great time. No, we had a, that was a blast. And we made lifelong <laughs> friendships out of that. Yeah. So, uh, so that's how far back we go. Um, yeah. So you're originally from where? I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Magical. It is magical. <laughs> it is very magical. <laughs> it's so magical. The state is called the land of enchantment. That's the state motto. But the locals call it the land of entrapment because so many people <laughs> go there to visit and then they never leave because they're just so captivated. So right. just be careful if you go to New Mexico. You okay. could end up making a big life change. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm from there. Um, I love it there. And my parents you, are still there. You were there till how old? Till till you went off to school? Till kind of eighteen, thing? yeah. Okay. And then I went to college at Northwestern, right outside Chicago. And oh, there's a there's a weather change for you. Oh, it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was. I just remember standing in the freezing cold, like my. It was the first time that my nose got frozen. You know when your nose. <laughs> yes. Like you, it's so such a weird sensation. I just remember laughing hysterically, like it just couldn't get my mind around how cold it was. <laughs> <laughs> like Michigan. Like this is a this can't be real. This is not really. Yeah, like people live this way. Just you know, I was like spitting and seeing if it would freeze because I heard that was a rumor on like on the way down. It, it didn't, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I went to acting school there, and uh, had an amazing experience. And then after that, I moved to New York to make it big on Broadway, like all of us. That's right. And then you ended up meeting us, and that was the end of that story. Which... <laughs> change that real fast <laughs> so so you you 
wanted to be an actor originally. That was was that always a thing was from like dead set on being an actor. Yeah, from, from tiny, tiny, or all, all you know. When did from you tiny? Okay, cool. Yeah, it, yeah. From, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like I liked my seeing myself on screen necessarily, but I just loved the, the way that kind of platform and a storytelling could connect so many people. Like I really loved being in an audience and just seeing like, you know, a theatrical experience was like, it was like a communion. It was like such a, like even in, even any movie I see where like a group of people are like V for Vendetta or like Braveheart where it's like a group of people have one common mission and they do, I'm just like, I, I start bawling. So there's something about the group experience that I just it opens my heart like nothing else. I'm also totally fascinated with cults for the exact same reason. I'm like, yeah, a group that believes one thing. <laughs> I like really have to stay away from cults because I think I would be really into it. Yeah, I'm gonna guess I mean, that combining New Mexico enchantment and cults is oh yeah, probably it's like a bad idea. yeah, I got to be careful. <laughs> so, but so it was always light. It was always theater, though, right? Like, uh, were you looking I mean, for I, a film? I know or? I loved movies too. Like, yeah, no, I loved I loved everything. But I went to school for theater and. I went to you know, this very serious acting school and they always said, you know, theater is the actor's medium, yes. film is the director's medium, which makes sense. Sure. So I was, I, I, you know, didn't know how to direct or anything. And I, I um, was on the actor side. So I got really into theater and just, you know, really bought, drank the Kool-Aid on um, <laughs> theater. Theater people are another cult. Total Maybe that's why I was really cult. into them. <laughs> There's some subsets um, like musical theater people are a whole other cult. Oh yeah, it's yeah, they're subcults. Yeah, yeah right. um, <laughs> there's lots of gurus involved. Yeah, that's right. My acting teacher was definitely a guru. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I so I was I was really I was really into theater. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna really maintain the integrity of act, you know acting, and uh, New York is the place to do it. It's the only place to do that. Really, it's the right. only place where there's enough of a thriving community in order to especially explore that especially much that was the tail end of that time i mean it was always that way but th- at that time there was still like black boxes everywhere and and lots of new york theater i don't know what it is now i've been out of it for so long but then it was like yeah sure you can just jump yeah in the especially post covid i'm sure a lot right. of those places are gone sure but yeah it was so experimental and new york is just always uh, i loved I, I so i ended up moving to new york and i lived there for 10 years and i one thing that I to this day appreciate is how um, there really is, especially in the art community, a standard of excellence. Yes. Right. Like there really is a drive to be excellent. And right. yeah, it can look really pretentious a lot of times. Right. Yes. But um, <laughs> that's not true in LA. There, the drive is not for excellence, it's for success. Right. And different. It's, it's a different narrative. And, uh, you know, tons of things succeed here that have absolutely no excellence to them whatsoever. And it's baffling for people on the East Coast. <laughs> yes. You know, what's interesting about that that point is I was about to interject that it's just the, the sheer volume of, um, you know, the amount of theater and actors and all that in New York that kind of drives this excellence. But the same idea uh, on the other side, on the other coast, but it's but you say it's for a different goal. It's for it's more for success than it is for. I wonder what that's about. I wonder where that where the root of that comes from. I uh, to me, I mean, if you look at if you look at the machine of production, you know, Hollywood's the place to be if you want to make movies. Just sure. like New York's place to be for theater, and the 
the the machine of production is is very expensive and worldwide you know it's like a it's a huge monster and to maintain that machine you need a lot of money coming from right. the populace and you need that that drives you know it's based on success right. so to me i think it's more like art needs money <laughs> yes. and they go big here <laughs> yeah right right and uh yeah you can go a little machine smaller gets fed. <laughs> right in new york and it's not as much uh, uh, capital required to, yeah it's yeah. a smaller yeah it's a smaller deal so you don't have to get so egregious about things okay but i also think it's just a cultural value value you know new york like the architecture is all about excellence right. the even ach achievement is about excellence right, right, and right, right. Um, so it's something, yeah, just different cultural values. And there's a, but, obviously everybody talks about it, and it's obvious to everybody. It's a different energy. It's just a different. Uh, yeah, and they complement each other. Yeah, they they're they're a great pair. I mean, they hate each other and they complement <laughs> each other. But it's the yin and yang of the entertainment industry, you know. <laughs> right. Well, here we are, L.A. and, and New York. Yeah, so. here we are embodying the whole. That's thing. incredible. Uh, <laughs> so so you get to New York and uh, and. Um, you're out of school now. Do you get a you get a little place to live? How do you how are you making it? How are you doing it? What as yeah, a young a actor, what are you doing? Exactly. I was so excited, but no money. I had moved in with my two girlfriends. We got this little apartment that was behind the projects. It was like the project behind the projects. Nice. <laughs> and, Not even the projects. Um, Not even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was the three of us and a bunch of mice. And um I got a waitressing job. I got a uh I got a I got a waitressing job first, and then I really couldn't stand being a cliche. I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand even my customers who were like, oh, you're a waitress, are you an actress? And I was like, "Wow, I just hate that. I hated it. So I thought I got it. I can't be a waitress. This is just damaging to my identity and my ego. <laughs> so <laughs> I did two things. One, I was like, all right, what job do I want? And I was like, you know, I was a little chubby at the time because I just graduated from college and I still had like, you know, the extra 20 pounds you get in college. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so I was kind of uncomfortable in my body. And I was like, you know, it'd be cool if I could get a job as a nude model at an <laughs> art school. And then I would be naked all day and I would really have to confront, you know, how good I felt in my own skin and, you know, really come in touch with like being beautiful while I feel a little fat. And so... I called an art school, went to the phone book, called the art school in the East Village, oh, the um, studio school of painting and drawing, and uh, called them up and was like, hey, do you guys need nude models? <laughs> they were like, do you have any experience? And I was like, no, but um, I do have a lot of mime training from college. I did took a lot of mime courses, so I know how to stay still for a very long time. And she was like, uh, I don't know. Come, all right, come in for an interview. So I came in, and there was this woman named Royalyn Ward Davis, which I remember to this day. And she had like a thousand wrinkles. She was like 93 years old, just smoking a cigarette. And she was like looking me up and down. And um, I was supposed to bring pictures. She was like, when you come, bring photos. And then she like hung up the phone, you know, before my interview. Come, I was like, photos? Does she want naked photos? or not naked photos because if she doesn't want naked photos i don't want to give her naked photos so i was like it just, you know my 21 year old self just like what do i do what do i do so i ended up before the interview i took half naked half not naked <laughs> you figured split it down the middle what the hell yeah i split no no, no i took half in a leotard and then not in full yeah and then half naked though, right? yeah i did half and half i went to the one hour photo mat 
the guy who handed them back to me was like, hmm, good luck. But, you know, like, I was like, oh, God. So I went to this interview. She was like chain smoking. She goes, did you bring your pictures? I was like, yeah, yeah, I brought my pictures. So I was like, I'll give her one of the not naked ones just in case, right? So she takes my photo. She looks at it. And her face shrivels up into this, like, image of ho- – she was just, like, disgusted. And for someone who's already feeling so, like, bad about my body, I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, I'm in a nightmare. But then she goes, it's just such a shame we can't see your breasts. And I was like, oh, I have 12 more pictures here, and you can see my breasts in them. Here, you can have them. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I have some right here. Yeah. I have them. I'm so happy and prepared for this audition. And <laughs> oh my god! So I got the job. Of course. And, <laughs> and I was a nude model, and I bought this robe that I thought was fabulous, and I would just like go in and just like be naked. And of course, nobody cared because they're art students, and they're just like New Yorkers, and they're in their heads and, it's, and, and it's whatever. East Village, so. But yeah, East Village, yeah. But I had a great, great time. So I did that. Part time. So and wait a then, minute. How much does a nude model pay in the East Village in two thousand? I started out at like twelve or fifteen dollars an hour, but I worked my way up to thirty. All right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> my mime training really came in. I was in high demand. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I loved it. So somewhere out in the world, there's like a ton of naked paintings of me, and I'm just like delighted awesome. by that thought. Well, the one um, thing we'll come back to uh, on that later is and this is interesting about you in particular, and people are going to see this as you speak, is as a young person to have the uh, frame of mind that this is what I'm going to do, but here's why I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I need to get in touch with why I don't feel so good about myself. So that's how I'm choosing. And yeah. this is a theme kind of that runs th- through your uh, spirit. That's as true. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, no, I'm not going to waste my time at a job unless I get self-growth out of it, right. obviously. That's awesome. So when do you get your first acting? Like we actually, you get a gig where you're acting. I got a gig. um, My first theater gig was this horrible play. Wow, it was bad. Wow. It was stunningly bad. And I knew how bad it was. And I was like, I'm going to do this terrible play that some guy wrote and was like, I'm going to put on a play. And it was just nonsense. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to do this terrible, terrible play. So that I will learn to never take jobs like this again. <laughs> again. Because again. I, I know. I know. I don't know. And I don't know why I thought I had to teach myself that lesson. Like, why did I have to go through the pain of being in a horrible production? It was horrible. Every rehearsal, everybody hated. When it came time for the performance, I was, I, you know, we had just all gotten out of college. So we were like, this person's in this play and this, you know, let's go all see each other's plays. And I was like, guys, this play is so bad. I'm so sorry. I really do. I want you, I want you to come because you're my friends and I need you there to share this terrible experience with me. So they all came and it was like a black box theater and you could just see, you know, just like all the energy is drained out of the audience that they right. are just like melted into the floor because right. they're so miserable. Oh, That's what it was. Nice. And um, yeah, I've never taken a job that terrible again. So it worked. Well, well that's good. So you did teach <laughs> Got what I wanted the, the out of it. And it's, at that point, it's just, it's all theater. It's all like whatever you can get. Um, did you try, like, was ours the first, uh, uh, like, on-camera thing? Or were you doing yeah. other stuff? Yeah, it yeah was. yours was the first on-camera thing, yeah. Oh, I'm honored. That's exciting. Oh, my God, yeah. No, for, forever, forever remember it. We played um, cops, right? Detectives. Yeah, we were, yeah. Right? We were partners in a, in a, in a uh, surveillance van. 
and we were and we were tracking a, a killer a, a hired killer and he ends up we track him and and, and it's my wife that he that is paying him off to oh, kill that's me. right that's right that's right so you like, had a moment so had it a was moment. all very short it was very short. We it got like it a, got pretty far in Trigger Street, if, if I recall. We made it to like the last two fifty out of the entire thing. So, oh my god, that's we did so very awesome. well. So, but we didn't make it. Matt Damon and, <laughs> and did ben you guys Affleck. write it because you're like, okay, where can we shoot? Well, we can rent a van. Actually, we that was all Dan, as it usually is. It's, it's usually my buddy Dan's a, a brilliant idea to do this stuff. I think it was the idea was what could we pull off? What would be compelling? Because it had to be like a like five minutes. Like the, the yeah, contest you had was no like, time to get across yeah. So it's like, all right, husband sees his wife, she's gonna kill him, and what's the you know? It was and it came to him real quick, and it was easy to. <laughs> and you were great. You were great in it. We loved you, and your energy was great, and we hit it off right away. And at that time, I was just about to start shooting my first feature, like just take oh, yeah. a wild swing at it. And you had shown interest in like being behind the camera and being you know, uh, involved in film. And then we kind of worked together as, uh, um, uh, on that, on, on the film. So that was lower than the angels, right? Correct. Lower than the angels. Yes, That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was great. Yeah. That was a great experience. And, and you helped me a lot, a lot on that as sort of my, my first AD, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, you and I both, I feel like we were both figuring out how to edit, Yeah. you know, how to put all that, how to just, you know, we, you and I both have like these very independent philosophies, which is like, fuck it. I'm just going to do it myself. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I think you caught editing software first, right? I did. Yeah. I, I, I had to, because I, I was like, well, I I can't pay anybody to cut this movie. (laughs) I can't pay anybody to shoot this movie. So I'm going to have to do all of it. And I didn't know how to do any of it. And, and, uh, we dove right in. I was so inspired by that because I got editing software after you did, yeah, you really like set up a lot of um, possibility for me. And you, you, you took that. You turned that after we did that picture, and then uh, uh, you took that into a career. Like you turned, you, you became Imagine Edit at the time. I believe was the name of the company, and you did like yeah. uh, small productions, actors reels. You did a lot. You can talk about that a little bit. Why? What was it? What was it about going from in front of the camera and on the stage? To behind what was that about in your oh, mind? the control of storytelling was unbelievable at the time i had been cast in three different roles three totally different unrelated roles and they were all named bubbles <laughs> my character bubbles every time i was like seriously bubbles and it was just like that was the quality of stuff i was being cast you know i was right. like it has to be better than this and i just felt like i felt like i felt like i could do better but yeah. to do better, I was like, well, I'm going to maybe have to do, you know, I'm going to have to get involved in the storytelling more than just waiting around to be cast. And then when I got the editing software and started to kind of, I got it to put together my demo reel. Right. And um, I loved it. I <laughs> loved editing. It was like, I loved the timing of it. I could control the pacing. The payoff was so amazing. Because if you got like a rhythmic thing right or a scene thing right, it was just so satisfying and it was like oh wow when you're in, when you're acting you give people all this raw material and then you just hope to god that somebody knows how to put it together and usually they don't right right but this was like you could play god you know you're like i control the whole story that's right <laughs> and i loved it i just so you know i think 
even as, even as an actor, it's the storytelling part I really love. It's the right. you know the the bridging the void from the from the teller to the audience. I I love yeah. that. So so um, so were you during any of this time as an actor, and then when you went behind the scenes and you start editing and you start shooting? We even we did a lot of things, collaborated a lot of things together where. You know, I'd go shoot something with you and you'd direct actors reels or, or, or a short film or something and then you'd cut it. Um, but after during all that, are you writing now? Are you uh, have you crossed that place? Have, have you ever, had you ever I, done that before or what? Yeah, I was writing a, just small stuff. I was writing two things. One, um, because my demo reel turned out so well, I started to cut other people's demo reels and I became like the demo reel person <laughs> yes, you did. In, in New York you did. to go to when you need your reel cut. And um, then I started getting actors, you know, I, I'd get their reels and they didn't have that much material. And I'd be like, you know, I know a guy who shoots stuff. You could hire him. <laughs> I could write a scene for you and we could make you your own little custom reel. Right. And so that we did that. Yeah. So I started to write little scenes for people. That was one thing. Now, had you ever done that? Have you, had you ever written before either anything? Yeah, the, the one thing I've written before was... Uh, in mime. <laughs> oh, okay. So in, but this is actually where I learned storytelling. So when I was in college, there, my acting teacher was, um, he used to be a professional mime, like with Marcel Marceau, they had wow. the same teacher. Wow. And, um, I mean, mime, you know, when you think of mime now, you think of like some guy in the park doing little tricks, but <laughs> yeah. actually it's like this beautiful, beautiful art form that doesn't have any words. So you have to tell an entire story, an entire narrative using just gestures. Okay and feeling and expression. And um, so when I was in college, he taught, he took a, a few of us aside and he trained us how to how to do this. And we put on a show, we did a little tour with it. And the show was like maybe 20 little stories. Each one had a title card. Someone come out with the title <laughs> card. And then it was either one person doing it or up to 20 wow. doing like a group piece together. And it was phenomenal because, you know, if you are doing a mime show and you're telling a story, you have to be so good. You have to be perfect. Like you have to, you're, you're, cause there's no, there's nothing there. So right. what you're doing is you're asking the, the audience right. to imagine things you're holding and it has to be crystal clear sure. what they are and what story you're telling. And if they miss it, right. you're toast. Right, you can't right. go back and like improvise. You know, there's none of that. You have to be so perfect. And then for the story to mean anything, it has to be so good. So we like would work out tons, you know, every day. And then sort of like, you know, down to our fingers, like wow. we'd have to work out like our finger. So we could just do the precision of the. Wow. It was amazing. And um, and so I graduated having done a few a few years of these mime shows. And then when we, I moved to New York, I had two girlfriends who were in the company. And we were like. You know, it would be cool if we quit our jobs and wrote a new mime show and became professional mimes. And so <laughs> I quit my new modeling job and we pulled all our money. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So, <laughs> Can you just imagine my parents? Oh, but yeah, right. Gonna, it's like, what? It's like, wait. So, all right. So you're quitting your nude modeling job to become a mime. <laughs> What the fuck is going on? <laughs> Kate, did you go to Northwest? Did you go? We sent you there, right? Right, right. You have a degree, like, for your brain, right? Like, <laughs> um, so we spent a couple months writing. We wrote one show for adults, and we wrote one show for kids. And 
they were beautiful. We, we rented a black box theater at the Atlantic, the Atlantic mm. black box space, and did this show uh, for adults. And then for kids, we booked all these schools that would have these private schools that would have us come in, do a show for kids, oh, and then cool. work with kids. And we made our living like that for a year. That's great. What, did that f what does that feel like? First of all, especially for young artists, forget what you're doing, whether you're a mime or whatever you're doing. You're an artist and you're making your... It did feel like that, yeah. It was cool. That's cool. It was, yeah, it very much. And it was so, you know, it was so far from being cast as bubbles. You know, it was like so different and right. original. And, you know, yeah, it was terrifying because, you know, we weren't, you know, it, it wasn't always, we didn't always have good shows and we were, you know, it felt dumb. And a lot, you know, we were like, yeah. people were like, what do you do in New York? And then you're like, oh God, I'm just an asshole. Wears <laughs> makeup and dresses in black and does like. <laughs> it's like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a alarm. <laughs> it's like not cool. Right. You know what I mean? Until you see the show and you're like, oh my God, that's sure. really cool. Well, you know, so, I mean, but it was not cool. <laughs> from, from, uh, I mean, it, it's not mine, but from Moomin Shams to the, to the Blue Man Group, to the whoever, to Cirque yeah. du Soleil, it, it is pretty cool if you can pull it it's off. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> wow. That's great. So, so at what point does the, uh, are you doing this? Is this before? No, this is, I, my question was, were you writing? So, uh, yeah, so that was my first time writing. writing so actually something. my first experience writing was writing without words. Wow. That's, but it was, it was the best experience you could possibly have because, you know, every story had a beginning, middle and end. It was a narrative. You had to nail every moment. You had to know why you were telling that story. You had to do it through your body, which mm. is a totally different experience. Right. And so by the time I was actually writing scripts, I was like, oh, this is a breeze. You get words <laughs> to explain things. <laughs> please give me something challenging <laughs> but it was it was great and also it, i got really um good at comedic timing because it was there was a lot of comedy in it and it was like you had to make sure you know you sure. land the joke every time you like walk three beats and you pause and then you do the punchline like right. you know whatever that was physically and so i got really really good at, at um, comedic timing and um that ended up to be a great gateway into doing comedy now were you always were you funny? Did you think think you were kind of a a funny person? I never thought I was funny, but in high school I was voted class clown. And <laughs> I mean, I always thought I was, you know, when I went to acting school, I was like, oh, I'm going to be like Meryl Streep. But it turns out, no, I'm not, Mer <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm like, no, I'm funny and I don't know I'm being funny. You know, I, yeah, I'm a comedy, I was a comedy person, right. and, but I felt very serious. Sure. So <laughs> That's probably um, why it was so good. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah, I was very invested in the character. You were all in. <laughs> yeah, no, but it took me to get, it's only when I started getting cast comedically that I was like, oh, this is a thing people value because it was easy for me. So I, because it wasn't hard, I didn't mm -hmm. think it was valuable. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like the thing you're talented at, you're like, yeah, yeah. but everybody can do that. So what's the big deal? You right. know? Yeah, no, for you, you need to suffer a little and there's got to be a oh, reason I need for... to suffer yeah. so much. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I don't do that anymore. That was really my 20s and my mom to this day makes fun of me for <laughs> needing to suffer. She's like, that was so unnecessary. Like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dude. Well, well, I don't know how unnecessary it was. It look, look at, look at what it, how it informs everything you do. It's it's the uh, intention of going in to suffer that I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap my brain around. Oh no, I I was a total. Uh, is it masochist? Yeah, you can do it exactly. to yourself. Right, yeah, right. total masochist. <laughs> oh, it was. Yeah, I'm really glad. My mom just every once in a while she'll be like, "I'm really glad you don't do things that make you suffer anymore." Oh. <laughs> like, 
Aww. Thanks, Mom. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I gave you so much angst. Yeah. So, so you're um, all right. So now, at what point? Because this is the this is the heartbreak for me. You leave New York, right? I remember you, you, you leave New York. You leave us behind, and you're going to. <laughs> did you? That's where you were going to Los Angeles, right? Was it? Was that right away, or did you? What happened? A, um, were you, you? No, you know, I hit a wall in New York. I was like lived there for eight years at that time and I was burnt I was so burnt and I just looked around at how we were all doing doing it how we were all trying to succeed and it was like everyone's trying to get a better agent because their mm. agent sucks and figuring out do you need a manager or an agent and then you can't really be authentic in front of your reps because they'll probably fire you in next week and just no one was happy. No mm. one was happy. Right. And even my friends who were on Broadway were had a whole other set of problems. And it was like, this is, this can't be right. This this can't be right. This is this is terrible. This is actually terrible. I think I signed up for a terrible life. And <laughs> so I left. I went to New Mexico. I didn't go to LA right That's away. What I, I thought, was like, I thought just... you went back uh, to west, but I didn't know you went to if you went to LA or not. Yeah, I went home. I mm. came home, and I was like, you know, contemplating giving all of it up. I was like, this Wa is watching some sunsets on a ridge somewhere, <laughs> basically, and just sort of being like regrouping. You know, I was like twenty eight, twenty nine. That's like the regroup year, anyway, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. Saturn returns. Right. So. During that time, two things happened. One, I was, I was like, well, oh no, that didn't happen until a little bit later. I forgot. No, what, so why was there? I just sort of regrouped, took some time, and I was sort of like, I'm just gonna wait for a sign, you know. <laughs> and a couple months later, I got a call from a director I'd worked with in New York, who had written and directed the one play that I really loved. It was like a part written for me. It was a comedy. Not named Bubbles. Called not name bubbles although we did play a ditzy wife but um we had so much fun it was called sealed for freshness it was about a, a tupperware party in, in 1968 and it was an ensemble cast it was all women we had such a good time we just did it in this little black box theater and he called and said i just got funding to mount this off broadway do you want will you come back wow. and do your role and i was like Oh my God, are you kidding me? I was waiting for a sign and that's the sign. <laughs> so I went back and we put up the show. We had we did like 88, 87, 89 performances, something like that, like a really long run wow. for Off-Broadway. It was so fun. It was this big theater and... Um, was that recorded just, or something? Or, or sh I remember seeing pieces of it did you have did somebody it was on the news i mean yeah, the, it, I nothing yeah nothing it, official yeah. recording i got my um cartoon drawn in the new yorker yes that that cool. was so cool that was so cool that's i still have that super cool i was like yeah this is this is the new york experience i wanted to be in the new yorker as a cartoon <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking that's it. <laughs> um and uh so that was great and then the show ended and, you know, I looked at my paycheck, what I'd gotten for that. My Basically, my dream came true, right? I was like, this is my dream. Big role written for me off Broadway. And we had this long run. And at the end of the day, I still got like $350 a week 
you know, it was just nothing. And I was like, oh, my dream is so cheap. Right, right. Um, so that's when I decided I need to move to L.A. where there's money. Yeah. I can't, I can't sustain here. So that's when I moved to L.A. Okay. So when you move to L.A., are you still thinking you're an actress or... or yeah, now I'm on fire, right? Yeah, I'm like, you're, you're, oh, you're a Broadway okay. star. Yeah, right. <laughs> Myself seriously, finally. <laughs> yeah, I moved to LA, and I moved there right during the writer's strike. <laughs> and so there's like nothing going on, and there's turmoil. Right. It's like everything's frozen. And um, it was also the same time that people were starting to contemplate making their own web series. It was like just the right. dawn of that. Yeah, the beginning of all that stuff, sure. Yeah, and because the world the entertainment world was frozen there were these studios the big studios were like well maybe we'll start investing in little web people because we can't buy from the writers you know <laughs> um i don't that's a very anti-union thing to say I don't it, mean it, to, it just is to, what it is you know i don't mean to spin it that way that's just what was happening absolutely um I d i'm in the writers union i don't mean to i love <laughs> and i love it so i don't mean to no, i'm not anti-union a pro-union <laughs> um <laughs> We'll put a but, disclaimer um, graphic under your... I know. Thing, yeah. uh, so um, all I could think about was making a... All we could think about was my own acting career. And I was like, okay, this... Basically, I was like, this is a chance to start over and not do things the burnout way. Right. So I was like, okay, what is... What's, what's a way that I would like to do it, not the way you're supposed to do it. Because right. the way you're supposed to do it, you're supposed to make something, and then you go knock on doors, and you go spin yourself and pitch yourself, and you have great headshots and a website, and you're like, it's me, cast me, and I made this content. Right. Like, that's the way, right. right? I was like, I do not have energy for that, and that didn't work in New York. I did that, right. and nothing worked. So I had this other idea that I was like, Okay, this is what I really want. What I really want is to make something that I think is so funny. Like, basically, I just want to make my mom laugh. <laughs> and I would like that thing to be so funny and magical that I don't even have to go knock on any doors, that people just find it. Right. And they like it, and they pass it on, and they come to me. Right. So I set that intention, and I made this little show called The Actor Diaries. It's just four Great very simple stuff. episodes. If anybody hasn't seen it, we'll put a link somewhere. Some of that okay. stuff is so funny. <laughs> and it's just me playing Kate Van Devener, being an actress. It's very short. It's like 12 minutes total, mm -hmm. you know? And and it's uneven. Like, parts of it are really <laughs> funny. Parts of it are like, oh, my God, she, you know, whatever. She's a new writer, you know? Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I put up online, and I just wait. I just waited. And um, sure enough, the third episode got on the Vimeo best pick staff list. Wow. And it started to go viral. And um, some, I put it on my Facebook page, and I got a few phone calls. I got a phone call from a, the wife of a high school friend of mine who was an executive at Fox. And I got a phone call from um, Innovative, the agency. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call from the producers of American Idol. And I, like, I don't even know how they found me. I literally was didn't even put my contact info up, right? I was like, they're going to find me. And they fucking found me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have an agent or anything. So I ended up signing two contracts, one with Fox to write and produce and star in a web series for them. And another one to uh, with Fremantle Media, who's a production mm -hmm. company behind American Idol, to write and produce and star in a web series for them. Wow. So yes. So what? So when this happens, first of all, 
it's validating a uh, an intention you put out. That's number one. So, so that's got to be a, a certain spiritually rewarding vibe right there. It's, it's, it's validation. But are you terrified? Are you like, oh, shit, I got to fight? Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't even have, you know, there's a certain software you use to write scripts yes. called Final Draft. I didn't have that, and I couldn't afford it. So I was writing on Word, and I was like, every time you needed dialogue, it was like, space, space, tap, space, tap, space, tap, space, tap. space, 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 space. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just hoping they would. I didn't even know how to format it. You know, I was wow, like, really, right? yeah, it was all that. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I'm in the big leagues now. And, um, yeah, it was terrifying, but it was glorious terror. Uh, right. I didn't mind it. You know, I had a paycheck on the end of it. And, and um, how did you, uh, there's two things I want to, that we'll explore as we go on. One is, again, there's a little recurring theme where you're in a spot and this kind of leads to where you are in your life now, which I want to get to too, which is where you're in a spot where things are done a certain way and it's toxic. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a, it's not a healthy, it may produce something, but it's not healthy for your soul. And you go, you know what? Fuck that. I, there's gotta be a way I can do it where I can like it at the same time. So that's one thing you did with this and, that's what it led to. It led to this incredible find. And the other thing, which we'll touch on, and the other thing I want to talk about is now you start writing, and like you said, you don't even have the software. What's what's your process then as we get into the, the craft part of this? And, and how, and we'll see how it's changed now. But like when you first start writing, you're like, computer on. Uh, what, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what was you, did you do it in the morning? Did you do Like, how do you do it? Oh God, I love that question. My heart just was like, oh yes. <laughs> I love that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's going in my trailer right there. I love that question. <laughs> but let's talk about your first question yes. because you, you have a similar instinct right it's like don't leave your own pleasure out of the equation yes yeah yeah if you deny that there's a sickness that no matter what you're achieving it's going to kill you but it it takes a special person like you to to recognize that and dig out beforehand so uh you know it it, I, I don't, it takes more than a special person i would say it takes two other things that i've noticed it takes a community around that person validating mm. that that is the right way Sure. And I have certainly tried to do that for a lot of other people. Right, right. Because you feel crazy. Yeah. You feel absolutely crazy for, you know, every time I go to a, a party, it's like, oh, what are you doing? What are your auditions? What are you, blah, blah. you know, it's, you don't even belong to that conversation anymore. So you look like a loser. Right, right. <laughs> so actually like, you, so if you have a community of people that are like, no, you're, that's right. Do it that way. Right. It's, you need that. And the other thing I think, and I'm curious what your experience of this is, but the timing is crucial. It's critical for when that kind of bravery could actually work. And I think because I had, and I've, you know, I've, like we almost say the word crossroads, right? Right. Crossroads, it's a crucial point. It's a cross. Right. It's a crucial point mm -hmm. where something could happen that hasn't happened before. Right. But if, if you're up here and you're trying to be brave and you're trying to get the world to, you know, bend to your will at a time when you're not standing at a crossroads, it probably won't work. Yeah. And the and the the timing, the fact that the industry was at a crossroads at the time when I decided to bend it to my will, <laughs> right. then I think it was an elixir. You know, it was sort of like an out 
an alchemy was there for right. success. But I feel like part of part of if you're a person who is forging a path that hasn't been forged before, part of the skill set you need is to be attuned to when the crossroads show up. Yeah, I suppose. So I mean, you don't I, get drained. I think you're right. I think I think that is that's the sauce. That's the ingredients of the sauce. Whether you can, I mean, maybe you probably better than me. So whether you can actually be attuned and recognize that and kind of coincide that so those two things go together is another thing i don't know that i certainly can't do that i think it's i think it's much more i have a a difficult time i'm probably aware after the fact <laughs> that that was the case but i i couldn't see it as it's happening you know what oh, I mean? that's interesting yeah yeah i don't think i've ever I've, I, don't, I, I may have felt it but i don't know if i've ever been able to articulate it in my mind where i can see okay we're approaching this moment where you know those things are crossing and 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 this might be the moment for me to be brave it's usually i just jump off a a rock and i either crash several stones down the cliff and then then wake up and go probably not the right time to do that you know i've done that many times in my life well that's another way yeah it's as long as you as long as you don't die you know it's fine yeah so. no and and way i think maybe maybe people with more fortitude I think I just maybe don't have enough fortitude to do that that way. I'm like much lazier. I'm like, I'm just going to lie and wait. <laughs> yeah. There's the smart way and then there's the stupid way. So it's okay. No, no, no. Yours is just like the boxer way. Right. And mine is just like the lounge chair way. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, uh, we're You're both... like, I'm always going to be fighting. So when that crossroad comes, you'll just catch me mid-swing. <laughs> I'll get up if they knock me down. It's okay. Well, at least we're both still here. So that's we're that worked out. Here. So, so... Again, the, to the craft, when you're writing then, is it just blank page, you know, do, do, do you talk out loud? Do things are in the head? I mean, how do you, how do you, is it dialogue? Is it pictures? How are you writing? Oh, man. Let me just reiterate how much I love this question. <laughs> oh, feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> Back then, no, it was terrible. I would, there would, it was like I had this contract from Fox. Right. And I sat down and opened a blank page and I had, I was like intermittently confident. You know, I, I was like, yeah, this is really good. And then the next day I'd be like, I don't know what I'm doing. I think I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. And I think my whole life has been a lot, you know, <laughs> like go back and forth. <laughs> so it was really uneven. Yeah. You know, I just, just like trying to control my emotions was a huge part of it. And then, but so that affected the craft and, um, you know, when you put yourself in front of a blank page, usually what happens, especially if your emotions are going back and forth, is that it's an opportunity for all your demons to come forward and just look you in the eye. <laughs> and then you're just staring at all the reasons you shouldn't be a writer wow. and all the insecurities you have and that childhood experience that really pounded in, you know, <laughs> a few terrible traumatic things. And so... It was a terrible experience. I ha I hated it. I hated it. Um, I loved it. Ended up to be great. Like they loved the script, but I was so battered by the end of it that I was like, "Why? I hate the script because <laughs> it just like took so much of my soul to to write it." And um, I yeah, I came out of that experience, and a couple. I mean, 
that experience, I would say that experience got me into bigger jobs. I ended up getting a job as a writer at CBS on a sitcom and and that experience. And I was in a room with other writers. So I was watching how they approached that question and and how we did it as a group. We're going to get into this part too, because a lot of people don't under, they see things represented on television about writers rooms, but I want you to really uh, uh, enlighten us as to what that's like. But I'll let let me finish, let you finish your point there. Yeah. So anyway, so not only that first process of, I mean, you're saying like, what's the difference between now and then? Right. But I, I had this question, you know, I, I, especially because I had been all about suffering before that. And then at some point I came to the, the realization that I did not want to suffer anymore ever. And writing was a lot of suffering because mm-hmm. it was just the angst of not being able to express yourself and feeling like you had a story, but maybe you didn't, you couldn't control when it was talking to you. Mm-hmm. And you had these deadlines and then just like writing something to make the deadline. But then that was betraying the story. It didn't feel right. And then it didn't even make sense. You know, like if you force something on the page just to make the deadline, suddenly you're having characters say things that they shouldn't say. And so you're like, now my characters don't have integrity and the comedy isn't that good. And so it's like, uh, it's like, you know, a lot of things start slipping away right. because of this angst and you end up with something very mediocre mm-hmm. uh, um, a lot of times. Sure. Just, and that mediocrity often makes it onto television, you know, that's <laughs> like a lot of it. <laughs> as we know, as we know. <laughs> yeah. So I hated that. I just, I, so I went, I kind of went on, a, I, I did, I went on a very specific mission and I was like, I'm not going to do this unless it is fun and unless I can completely have command over it because I thought it was bullshit Mm -hmm. that an idea would just show up when it wanted to I was like no sir I have a deadline you will come to me and you will be accurate and wonderful what is the problem (laughs) so um now that that involved a long process that you know I, I don't have to talk about but um I ended up almost taking myself out of Hollywood for a couple of years to figure out that question. Right. And uh, I solved it. I solved it. And then I opened a business to coach other people how to do it. All so right, so this is the cliffhanger. We're going to, we're going to go cliffhanger on that. We're going to come back to that because that's a very big shift. And what you're doing out there is really, really special. And uh, I think a lot of people are benefiting. And I think, I think if it spreads the way it should, it could change uh, the way creative artists do what they do and we're going to get to Thank that. Thank you. So I hope so. That's, I really, I, I think, I hope so. I think it, I think it will. And, uh, but to go back now, so now we set yeah. the cliffhanger of where we're going to go. Things are going to get good folks in the third act. You know, it's going to get, <laughs> if I've disappointed you so far, that's right. don't worry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to go back to, you get a, a show, a, a gig as a writer on a CBS sitcom network yeah. tv sitcom you're now in a writer's room with yeah. how many how many are typically in a writer's there were, room uh eight of us so eight writers and then didn't you also tell me that sometimes they they bring in like comedians to punch things up and like so there might be other people in and out or no is that my mistake? Uh, not on that show okay. not on that show but sometimes they'll do that I, when I, I was a showman on another show and i did that yeah but needless to say there are Aside from the writers, thousands and dozens of voices up and down the chain to try and get this thing going. So you're forced to be creative in a room that I don't think people realize is as cutthroat as it can be sometimes. Talk about the writer's room experience, what it's like, you know, literally, you know, from like your day, 
morning, mm. the week? Like, how do you put on a show and what is that pressure like for you? So when a show is bought, there are two uh, brands involved. The studio that actually owns the show. And that would, for us, that was uh, 20th Century, 20th Century Fox, which I think now is a different name. <laughs> um, and then the network that distributes that show, that puts it on the air. And for us, that was CBS. So we were working on, we were working with 20th Century Fox and CBS. Mm. And both of those had different um, brands and different um, needs. You know, I mean, right. everybody needed the show to be sure. a success, but in general, the studio defers to the network. The network is like this big monster that everybody's afraid of. <laughs> and the studio is also a big monster, but they're like, but don't make the network mad because then they won't air our show. Right. So we're trying to be bossy too, but also do what they say, right. but also do what we say. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. <laughs> and um, they are all executives most of them do not come from any kind of creative field They come from either they were lawyers or they come from a business field but they a lot of them want to be creative which is also its own problem <laughs> um sometimes some of them are really great you know i don't mean to you sure. can't paint executives no, we're generalizing here, but... yeah but in general it's a you know it's they're two corporate you're working in in two within a nested corporation right. environment and those corporations run on money and money runs on fear mm. so by the time you get into the writer's room, which you would hope would be like this very safe space where you can be open and free and funny and vulnerable and share stories and riff on those and make those into a script, it is that on the surface. So, you know, we would come in every day at 10 a.m., intending to leave at 5 p.m., but really leaving at 10 p.m. Wow. Um, and we would kind of we'd all sit at a conference table um comedy rooms are always in one room together and that with the idea being that you're when you're pitching jokes you need to see if they're mm, funny to everybody right, yeah. drama rooms they often meet but then everybody has their own offices where they'll go and write individual episodes interesting so it's much more individual usually every, everybody's mm. allowed to run their their rooms in a different way so right. this was my experience which is common but there are nuances sure. um and those eight people are strangers. We've never met each other before. They're all at different levels. So there's, for us, there were two showrunners. The showrunners are executive producers and head writers. Okay. So they are in charge of making production decisions and, um, you know, figuring out, making, you know, here's what we want the set to look like. Right. And here are the co costume approval, actor approval, all that stuff. And then they're also at the table pitching, you know, we're pitching our show ideas to them and saying, right. like, you know, should it be this? Should it be this? So they're at the helm. And then under that, there are um, writers are often billed as producers, but they're they're writer producers. Um, there's like maybe four tiers of writers all the way down to a staff writer at the bottom. And then there's two assistants, usually two or three. And the assistants, we don't, the writers sit at the table and don't type anything. So an assistant is at the room typing wow. everything we say, everything we say wow. on a notes document. And then that that document is on the wall. We can all see it. Oh my! So it's God. this very like, I said this, and then it's like, in the history books forever, you know, oh by this assistant God. who's like, wow. and the assistants are also writers, and usually they're very frustrated because they often are not as tired and have good ideas, but they are not allowed to say anything. <laughs> it is like, very like it's like an off with your head situation yeah. if an assistant is like, um, I have an idea about yeah. how to solve this, scene. you know, wow. it's like no. <laughs> so it's a very hierarchical. 
um, room. And I got in some trouble (laughs) because (laughs) I was hired as the lowest level writer. I was a staff writer. Um, But my talent level was very high and I ended up getting assignments that usually showrunners give to higher up writers, Uh which made some people angry in the room. And then there was a war. (laughs) Um, So that was, it's, there's a lot of politics to navigate all as you're you're trying to write comedy, which is, I always thought so ironic because the basis of comedy is joy. Right. And it's not a joyful place. It's not, it's a funny, it can be a funny place. Right. But it's not joyful <laughs> and talk about the uh, because this leads into y- your ultimate solution the just sort of the underlying terminology the underlying warlike you know yeah overly so, well, masculine all, vibe right so so I, I started you know first of all it's a culture of fear and yeah I, I had this realization that even the language we use for creativity it's all about we um we beat out a first draft and then we um we do a vomit draft and then we we punch that up and then we write jokes that kill and then we make the deadline right you know these like beat punch kill dead you know <laughs> these are this is the language of destruction right and i was like wait a second we're in a fear based system using the language of destruction expected to birth something through creation this is terrible. This is the wrong framework. It's the wrong language. It's the wrong impetus. This is going to end badly. <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, it often does. And so I started to ask the question like, okay, well, what's the opposite of that? Well, it's to put yourself in a framework with a love base instead of a fear base. Right. And it's to use language like, you know, imagine um, like instead of a deadline <laughs> where you're like, okay, I want to make the deadline, which like even saying that sentence, <laughs> I want to make the, de- I want to go toward my own death. Right. I want to go for something that's homicidal. That's what we're doing. <laughs> and so even like, if you're like, I was like, what if I just start in my head calling a deadline a lifeline? I'm like, oh, I want to run toward a lifeline. Mm-hmm. Yes, I need a lifeline. I'm in creative duress. I need help. I want to go toward life. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it's like, oh, that's so different. Right. It's just very different, you know. And I heard this definition of of a deadline, which is it's a all it is it's a it's a point in space and time for breakthrough for, for the opportunity for breakthrough to happen. Mm. And I was like, that's great, because yeah, if you're if you have a deadline and you're handing something in, handing in a, a draft. It's an opportunity for the person reading it to have a breakthrough mm. about how to make it better, you know, for right. example. A crossroads of some kind. It's a crossroads. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a crossroads. So, yeah, so I started to, so when you start to, when you when you shift that perspective of like, we're not supposed to be creating in fear. Right. We're supposed to be, that's a, you know, it's a destructive cycle. We're in a, if you're, if you're in the creative part of the creative destructive loop. Right then how do i how do i put myself in love what does that mean how much of me is in fear and how can i withdraw from that place that is a big question and then how can i construct a system that takes the place of the fear-based system that has to work just as well or better and has to feel good because you have to want to do it again because here's the thing before you get to that that system as destructive as it is produces 
I mean, yes, it, it does. It's, it, there is mediocrity it, by far that, that comes out of it and less than mediocrity a lot of times, but there is also fantastic success. And so you can't deny that there is something that comes out of it. So if you're going right. to change the paradigm, you have to be able to produce. It has to work. It has to work. Yeah, it has to beat it. And the you're right. It, it does work. Usually the, the, the downside is it usually produces mediocrity or a less than version of what a, the brilliant idea that it could be right. was. And also the burnout rate is really high. Right, there's a huge cost for your... <sighs> huge cost to storytellers, you know, and I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine the therapy bills on all these people. <laughs> like, <laughs> even if you got yourself in a place where you would want to do that again, it, it eventually you're going to turn into a, a mess, a cynic, uh, right. you know, you're right. not going to... It's you'd be sitting at the bar with a cigarette, like oh, that writing yeah. gig, man. I did that for a while. Yeah, I do that. Well, it's my wife, my house. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, how can you preserve your your life and your soul and still be that kind of intensely creative? Not you know, even preserve. How can you restore it restore. as you're creating, so that it's a restorative cycle, right. so that it feels good. It feeds you as you create. So how long are you in this situation before you start to develop this new thing? Like how long are you doing that where you're doing that kind of writing, writing writer's rooms and whatever? Oh, I would say eight years. Oh, ah, eight years. Oh yeah. my goodness. Seven, maybe seven. You got a lot of restorative yeah. stuff to do after that then. Wow. And I couldn't stand it. And I was good at it. Yeah, I'll bet you were. Because I could figure out how to, I could figure out what the system was, or I could, I'm, I was really good at figuring out, you know, the voice of the showrunner. Even if I didn't like the showrunner, hmm. I could figure out how their brain worked. And so I could start to write characters that were in their voice. Right, right, right. And so I, I was, I was great at it. You know, I kept, that's why I kept getting promoted and. Right. What was the pinnacle so, before we break through to the other side? What was the pinnacle? Because now we're going to go, if you don't mind, if you have time, we got a little, you have time, right? Yeah, if anyone's still listening. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'm going to be the only we one. We promised them a big third act. That's right. I'm the only one playing this over and over, so it doesn't really matter. Oh, perfect. But we're perfect. breaking through to the second. Our, this is, that, was our, that was an hour. We did an hour. So that's great. So now our second hour uh, will be all the wonderful, oh beautiful, God. angelic stuff. But so what was the pinnacle of that for you uh, career? Like, did you get to be a showrunner? Did you get to... I, I know you told me a story where you actually filled in as an actor on a show, and it, that was a crazy oh, yeah. experience. You talk a little bit about that stuff where, when you got to the peak of it. The pinnacle, um, where you felt, yeah, the, I, that's, from a writer a, point of view. For, oh, sorry, what'd you say? Where you felt, okay, this is where I want to be. This is where I was trying to get to in this room or with this series. Yeah, well, there, I guess there were two experiences. One was an act, from an actor point of view, and one was from a writer point of view. But while I was on this CBS show, <laughs> I can't believe this happened. <laughs> I cannot believe to this day this happened. So I was on this CBS show. One of the actresses was pregnant, and every once in a while she wouldn't be there. And there's a lot of pressure. So what happens during a sitcom script uh, – or, or script prom development is you have one week to write a script. So you write this, you write the script. Usually, I mean, if you're not behind, but <laughs> usually it comes down to about a week. <laughs> you know? right. And there's the shoot date is already planned. And so you come out with the script 
you you go um, do a table read. All the executives are there. It's like a full room of all executives and designers. And the actors do the table read. You have these very famous people reading your lines. And then afterwards, the executives, who usually have zero sense of humor whatsoever, give you notes. Oh, and so they give notes to the showrunner. The notes can be everything from, like, we hated everything from act two forward to, like, pitching jokes that, you know, they could be they could be really bad because we've spent, you know, sometimes all-nighters writing the script and then they can just be like, we don't like it, you have to throw it out. So it's a, it's a, a lot of pressure. So the, do the table read. We have one day to f- incorporate their notes because the next day the actors are rehearsing it on the stage. So we've got half a day to update it, again, which could be a full rewrite sometimes. Wow. And then we give it to the actors. Then they do a a stu- There's two performances. One is for the studio, and right. one is for the network. So the day the studio come in, the studio gives notes. We have to rewrite it again. The next day, they do another uh, rehearsal for the network. The network gives notes. We do it again, and then the next day we shoot it. So it's very, very fast, and the pressure is very high. And a lot of times, we'll write really great jokes that the actors can't deliver. And so the executives think it's not funny. And instead of saying, like, can you rehearse with this actor so they get the joke, they'll be like, cut the joke. And the directors are new every week. So you don't have any kind of relationship with the director where you could be like, hey, can you work with this actor? It's all new. It's, you know, there's no there's no fostering of the creative process. So it's very important for those actors to land those jokes because it means the world to us and we are tired. Right. Right. (laughs) And that is our best that we gave them. So what would happen was when this actress went was out because she was pregnant or whatever, instead of they had like these actors who were stand-ins to deliver the lines for the rehearsal for the network or the studio, but often the stand-ins didn't have good comic timing. Mm. So they'd be like, "Kate, can you go <laughs> do this rehearsal with, you know, you know, you know how this joke should be delivered. So I would be the person. And so I could land the joke and the writers would be like, thank you, we don't have to rewrite that scene. You know, like, right, right. <laughs> it's like currency. So this went on for the season and I had a good time and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, it's fun to be an actor and have this multiple talent, you know. <laughs> okay. This is where the nightmare happens. <laughs> I cannot believe I lived through this, but I did. <laughs> so the actress goes into labor while we're supposed to be shooting the finale episode of the season she goes into labor there now this is a sitcom there's a live studio audience oh wow there's 200 people live there's like the stand-up comic warming people up and Mm. you know we do the show there's a laugh they laugh and we get you know it's all that so we don't have an actress so um they're like kate Can you put on a pregnancy suit, shoot the episode with the live audience, with James Vanderbeek, and you know, uh, right, you know, right. all the all the big with actors. the actors, and then we'll reshoot when she's the back. actress when she comes back, and you know, so just you. just in other words, just shoot your your off, you know, there, yeah. There, so okay. I'm just get the other actors as right. I'm doing the lines, but but I have the makeup and I'm in the pregnancy suit on. <laughs> And, I, and by the way, I'm so <laughs> tired. Sure. But I'm like, this is the dream. Like, can you imagine? Like, all actors are like, have this dream of being plucked from obscurity <laughs> and put 
front and center on national television. Not only that, but because it was our finale episode, everyone at Fox and CBS was coming down like it was a party to watch the shoot. Literally, Les Moonves, the guy at the top of the Me Too sex horror show, he was there. Top brass down. Mr. CBS all the way down. It was, and I'm, I was like, everyone will see me. And like the casting director came up to me. She's like, I heard you're shooting. We can't wait to see your work. And I was like, oh, thank you. Th-, you know, so I I have this rehearsal with the actors before the shoot. Right. And I'm in the pregnancy suit and I know this is going to be a big deal and everything. And I start to realize as I'm doing the scenes that this is not going to go well. And it's not going to go well for two reasons. One, I'm very rusty. I'm very rusty. Because this for 22 weeks, I've been sleeping in a writer's room. And, you know, in a writer's room for comedy, you're laughing all the time because you're trying to support people's jokes, right? right? So I had this weird thing where my face had been like, <laughs> like this <laughs> for like 22 weeks. And my muscles were kind of like frozen in a weird, like, looked like very asymmetrical for some reason i was like looking at myself on the screen like what is wrong so i was like oh my god oh my god and then the second thing was the actors realized or they felt that they wanted to make sure that the actress the pregnant actress was going to come back and that they didn't want the editors to use their takes with me Mm. because they felt it would down you know it would downsize her performance they wanted the authenticity between them and the real actress to be on screen so what they were doing was they were going to blow jokes so that they would not make the edit wow so i had all these jokes and they were being set up by these other actors but they were biffing it they were making it off rhythm they were downplaying it they were like half half into it so that their footage would not be used so i went into the writer's room and i was like and i came in this is a horrible moment i came in in costume because i wanted to i was like i want to tell them what's going on because the writers at this point are just like can't stand the actors (laughs) so you come into the writer's room with your pregnancy outfit on and that's already pissing everybody off because i am not only like outperformed them throughout the season but also now i have a fucking actor on the stage like with the people that they can't stand because they keep fucking up their jokes like I'm just like in all sorts of foreign t- territory that's not welcome. And I come in and they're like, oh, hi. You know, it's like weird because I'm like in costume, and, but I'm a writer. And I was like, listen, this is not going to go well. I just want you to know they're like not going to make these jokes land. I just want you. To, and like they, it, they were like, what are you talking about? Just go back. You know, like I was like, OK, so the, no one heard me. There's oh. nothing I could do about it. Everybody oh. hated me. Oh, God. <laughs> There was nothing I could do about it. There was no, I just was like marching into this horribly embarrassing moment, right. knowing full well how it was going to go down. Right. And it went down exactly like that. Every All the writers were huddled around the screens, waiting in anticipation for the comedy to just be so great because I, you know, apparently it's going to be so funny. All the executives are there. The live audience is there. And I dropped these jokes and it is dead silent oh god joke after joke a whole show a whole show of tanking jokes in front of captains of the industry and my writer's room and after this show and i'm like that was so bad 
but weirdly I felt satisfied because I knew it was going to happen and it totally happened. Right. And so I felt kind of smart, I guess. <laughs> but I just took off my costume. The casting director wouldn't look me in the eye. Oh, wow. I went back to the room. No one said anything. This no sounds one like was a, like, it sounds good like job. A Thank you so much. Curb Your Enthusiasm episode is terrible. It's a horrible spot. It was spot. horrible. And I know they were talking shit behind my back, but they were like, you know, it was really bad. Wow. So anyway, that was terrible. That was like a dream. It was like I had my dream moment, but it was the opposite of what the should have happened. <laughs> <laughs> so then I was like, oh, I think the fantasy doesn't really exist, you know. So that was kind of nice. Um, so that was sort of like the, you know, the end of my investing in an acting rescue where we're like plucked sure. out of obscurity to have this. I don't have that fantasy anymore. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I lost that one but, myself a long time ago. <laughs> oh, man, thank God. That was a burden. It wasn't even real anyway, right. so who cares? Um, and then on the writing side, I got a job as a showrunner. So I got, uh, there was a, YouTube was starting to make sitcoms. Mm -hmm. And they were, there was this um, comedy pair called Smosh. They had this show on YouTube. They had 25 million subscribers. Mm. And they wanted, to, uh, YouTube wanted to make a sitcom around them. Um, so they hired me to come and hire my own writer's room and work with the production company and or the production company hired me. Mm. Um, so I kind of got this, that, you know, I always felt like I wanted to be in a leadership position right. and I was like, oh, here's my chance to run my own room in not a toxic culture right. and run it not from, a, from fear and see how it goes. So I hired these wonderful people. I just absolutely loved these writers and but I didn't have a replacement system in place. And mm -hmm. so even though I had all the intention of not creating mediocre work and not working long hours and all that stuff, I didn't have anything in place to actually execute that. So I ended up emulating the exact same model that mm -hmm. all of us were grandfathered into, mm -hmm. which is what I, you know, what right. happened in the CBS room, basically. Right. I mean, I wasn't, we had kindness among us and I, you know, I felt like I, I sheltered them from a lot of other toxic stuff that was happening. So they had a good experience, right. but we didn't, we didn't, I don't, we didn't do anything innovative. You know, we didn't, right. we didn't really find the core of that story necessarily and like really, right. you know, do something. What was the experience of being for this, for the, for the person who, uh, once she started editing and once she started getting behind the camera, saw the control of the story as such a turn on and such an exciting transition. What is that like now that you're the showrunner? Is that the same experience? It's like, oh, I have this, or is or is the is the pre is it too much? Is there a lot of pressure involved, or is it the control part of it, controlling? That part was easy. I felt very natural at that okay. part. I was yeah. like, oh, this is the job I was born to do. I just I didn't have any. My mind works really well that way. I can think in different departments simultaneously, and I really like shepherding people. Mm. I like um, group dynamics. I right. think that's so interesting. So yeah, that the sh actual showrunning product producing right. executive producing part. I mean, it's hard. It, it's hard just because it's a lot of work, but it wasn't anything to figure out. I was like, "Oh, I'm really good at this." <laughs> right. so, so now, yeah, that part was not hard. So now, let's talk about the shepherding of people, which is hmm. what I think uh, uh, one of your soul's uh, pathways has, has, has really laid out to become. And that's when do you find that replacement? When do you find that replacement system, and how and how does it come to you? If you want to go there. Well, I was suicidal. Okay. All right. So that's one way to do it. <laughs> I was suicidal. I did something to myself um, that was bold. Um, 
I, I, so before I got that show, I was in a, I was, you know, my, I was in this place in life where I was like, you know, my life is good, but it's not extraordinary. <laughs> like on paper, it's good. I'm like in LA and I have this, you know, I've done some TV jobs and I have this, I was dating this really amazing guy at the time we were going to get married. I was like, this looks good, but I mean, I came here to shake the earth. Like this is not I, like I'm, I'm, this is just normal. So I, <laughs> so I, and I was frustrated because I didn't know how to be, be extraordinary. Like, what does that even mean? Right. And you didn't watch Pippin as a kid. So I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And also, there was something not great inside all of my paradigms, you know, like my something with my boyfriend was off and something with my best friend was off and something with my parents was off. So when I really started looking at it closer, I was like, I think everything is okay because I'm tolerating okayness. Mm. But there's some there's some, you know, dark stuff here that I don't think is being acknowledged in my side, my relationships. And I don't know how to how to get it up, right. you know, um, with the people involved, you know? So I just, I became like, I was like, not, I was not suicidal. I've never been hugely depressed for a long period of time. I've been like pretty ebullient and, mm-hmm. um, I didn't know what to do except for to stop doing every single thing that I was doing. Just stop everything. Just, just step on the brakes and that's it. What? Yeah. So I, I broke up with my boyfriend. I, I moved out of his house. I was who living was, there. Who so was your fiance, right? Yeah, it was my fiance. Oh, he hadn't officially proposed, but we were like talking about sure. getting married. And I called my best friend. And I was like, this is not working. <laughs> I don't think it can be. I need a break from our friendship. You know, it's my best friend. Wow. I still just love her to this day, but like I was somehow enabling her pain in a way that mm. I couldn't figure out what I was doing, you know. So I just was like, I need a, I need a break. We're still on a break. That was five years ago. Um, I called my parents and was like, I need a break. I need a break from this family. I'm going to go away. Wow. I'm not going to be a Van Devender for a while. Like, I don't know how wow. to get the love that I need from this family. And I think I'm the only one suffering. So I don't want to put that on you. I'm going to go away wow. from the family. And... When I and try to get the love I need in the world, and then when I have it, I'll come back. You know, it's like broke up with my family, broke up with my best friend, broke up with my boyfriend, became homeless. I became homeless. My job ended. What's that? Did you say became homeless? No, no, not homeless. Sorry, but I had to find a new place. <laughs> okay, you know, no, I wasn't on the streets. No, no, no. I really like suffering. Yeah, no. <laughs> wow, that's intense. I mean, I just didn't have a root. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And my job ended. Um, as all jobs in entertainment do. <laughs> so I, it was kind of like all these pillars of stability I just pulled out. I was like, pull them out and just see where this goes. Well, turns out, goes into despair. Um, <laughs> and I was in a black hole. I was like, I was really, really in despair. And I, I, I knew I, I would just, I was in so much pain. I was in a lot of soul pain. And I... Because it was at a time, I broke up with my boyfriend at the time where, you know, I was in my 30s. And so I was like, well, if I were going to have kids, it would probably be with him. But now I'm not with him anymore. So it was kind of like mm. the idea of mm-hmm. who I, what I was going to get from my career, from my f- 
family, my boyfriend from my friend. It, it all shattered. Yeah. I shattered it. I did it. Yes, <laughs> didn't even yes. shatter on its own. I intentionally did it. Yes. And then I was standing here looking at a shattered life. Right. And um, so I, I just was in so much. And then creatively, every time I thought about writing something, it was so painful because I was like, I don't like writing. I, I love telling stories, but I actually hate writing. So I, I don't know where to go for pleasure, mm. you know? Mm. And um, I called friends. I was like, I'm I'm suicidal. I don't really want to die. I just don't want to be in pain. Right. But I'm thinking about dying all the time. Sure. So I just want you to know that. Like, keep your eye on me, oh, you know? God. I would... I had this fantasy about um, shooting myself. I was like, okay, well, how do I want to die? Like, what would feel good? I was like, oh. Only a writer would do it. Would do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I want a gun to my head because just something about the, I just felt so hot and the cold right. steel. Good like, Lord, oh. Kate. So then I went to a gun stores and I'd be like, can oh. I just hold the revolver? And I like put it to my face. It made him really nervous, but I was like, oh, I <laughs> just want to see what it feels like to sleep with it under my pillow because I'm really worried about bur burglars. And they'd oh, be like, wow. Okay. <laughs> but it did feel good. I just got the sensation of like a cold gun and I'm be like, oh, that feels great. I can make it through another day. <laughs> I mean, it was very, I was, I wanted to see what the darkness was. Right. You know, I was not going to ignore it. I was going to go into it. So that's what it was. You dove right <laughs> um, in. So I was in a really dark place and my agents were like, can you write another script so we can pitch you and get you more work? And I was like, okay. So... But I was, I was, had so much pain that it was literally like if I did one more painful thing, I was going to kill myself, right, literally. Right, right. I couldn't take it. So I was in this bind because writing was painful. So, but, so I was like, well, I'm going to have to find a way to write that's not painful because I'm not going to, I literally won't be alive if I do it the old way. So um, I had, I was like, okay, well, what is, what feels good? Like, what would that fun way be, you know? Right. And... I didn't know at the time, but I was like, well, just something easy, like just easy. Like, I don't even want to write it. I just want like the idea to come to me. And I just, you know, when you're in the zone and you're yeah. like, oh, it feels like you're being gifted the idea and you just write it down. Like, that's what I wanted. Something right. like just channeling, you know, I was like, that sounds great. And, um, that's so I, so I knew that's what I was asking for. And then the other thing I wanted was, I wanted it to involve my whole humanity. Like when I thought about writing in a writer's room, like we're stuck in these chairs and we're just like in our brains, you know? And I, I, I saw this diagram of what a human is and it was like a circle with four quadrants and it was like heart, mind, soul, body. Mm. And so it was like a whole, that's our whole humanity. And when we write in writer's room, well, we're not in our bodies because we're in a chair. We're not in our hearts because we're terrified. Our hearts are really closed. We're kind of in our soul. Like if you're connected to your creativity, you know, you're sort of connected to your psyche. But again, you're afraid. So it's sporadic. It's like the lightning strikes sometimes, yeah. but not all the time. And then mostly you're in your head. Yes. But you're in the fear part of your head. So you're writing, often you're writing stuff you've heard before just to make the deadline. You know, it's like all that stuff. So mm -hmm. it's not like the genius part necessarily. Right. So I wanted a process that would be in all four quadrants and I wanted it to feel good and work on command. <laughs> I was like, that's what I want. I'm going to sit here with a gun to my head until I am given it. <laughs> this, this, somehow this seems to work for you, but go ahead. 
I don't recommend it. No. But, <laughs> um, but I will say, like, I think a lot of us just have a really high tolerance for pain. Mm. And for as long as we tolerate pain, we're not going to look for pleasure to replace it. Because right. we're like, well, I guess pain is normal, so I'll just keep going along with the pain. And I happen to be lucky enough, <laughs> so to speak, to reach a place where I could not tolerate any more pain. So you get to this place life. and you're sitting there in your lotus position waiting for this to happen. And uh, We're like my pajamas. Yeah, your pajamas, yeah, right. Bed, yeah. What, what comes to you? What, what is it, what's the breakthrough? So I had a dream. I had a dream of a title. And the dream, the title was How to Love a Psychopath. And I was like, <laughs> that's a good title. That's like so interesting, right? And like psychopaths, those are interesting. And it was a comedy, felt like comedy. So I was like, that was my starting place. I was like, well, that felt good. It came in a dream. Right. So that counts as pleasure, you know? Right. And I was like, all right, well, what else will feel good? Research about psychopaths. That sounds so fun. So I was like reading all these books about psychopaths. And one of the books I came across was um, about, you know, work by Carl Jung, who was one of the mm. grandfathers of psychology. Right. And he explored a lot about the shadow side of humans and what that means. And um, so I was reading a lot about that because of psychopaths, but I started to read. He did a lot about just how consciousness works right. in general. Isn't Jung the archetype and, guy? He, he built our, he, everything. Yeah, he's the one who really figured out that we dream in, our, that our psyches speak to us in pictures. Right. And, and that's why we dream in pictures and archetypes and symbols and, and feelings. And the way he explained it was like, there are four parts of your, your brain processes four different kinds of information, processes feelings, sensations, thoughts, and uh Feeling sensations, thoughts. Oh, that's it. Yeah, process. And then, and then there's inspiration. Right. And the way you get to inspiration is if your feelings, your thoughts, and your sensations are aligned. So in other words, if you feel, if your body feels good, it's in a good sensation place. If you don't have any broken heart, you know, if you're not concentrated on a, something that's painful, then that is aligned. If you are... If your brain is calm, then that's aligned. And when all those strings are aligned and calm, it opens the part of your brain where inspiration comes through. Mm. So I was like, this is what I'm looking for. <laughs> so um, I stumbled across a Jungian psychologist in the 60s. Her name was Dora Kalf, and she was Swiss. And she worked with um, children. And she had, you know, she she was working with kids and she was like, well, kids don't have language to speak. You know, we right. ask her like, what's going on at home? <laughs> they can't answer you. They're just like, uh, you know, so she was trying to develop a way to get into the psyches of children who needed work with trauma. Yeah. And so she designed this sandbox, tabletop sandbox. I have one behind me. I see that. I see it. And all these, and she put all these toys on the shelves like I have behind me here. And, um, each of the little toys represented an archetype or a symbol, you know, and she, the kid would come in and she'd be like, how are things going at home? And instead of answering verbally, the kid would come and pull mm. the symbols off the shelf and put them in this box. Right. And she realized once they made this arrangement of symbols that she could understand, like they had real meaning. She could figure out what was going on in their heads, you know? And I was like, oh my God, I wonder if this could work for storytelling. Like what if I bought a box and made all these symbols and asked the bot, you know, asked like my brain, like, what is this show about? I have a title, what is the show about? And then just see what happens if I start pulling symbols. So I did that, I made these little <laughs> Velcro flat pieces and I got a box off of childtherapytoys.com. Wow, wow. <laughs> and I put it all together 
and I I put on some music because the music was like very soothing so I was sort of in a a place of calm and it was a love state really that love state that I was looking for was not fearful it was actually like really welcoming and warm and it was a physical activity so I was like okay I have my body I have my heart my mind is relaxed because I'm just noticing what I'm pulling I'm not trying to generate anything you know and then I was had this inspiration connection so all four of those quadrants were (laughs) checked in this activity and um I wish someone else was there to, to describe what happened it was a miracle what happened um I turned on the music push play and I was like okay what is how to write a psychopath about and within probably 45 minutes I had downloaded um probably I would say 60 different symbols and they were all um like the first thing I saw was a an angel of death and I was like, oh, yeah, psychopath is an, like, because I, I was like, oh, I think it's a female psychopath. And yeah, she's an angel of death. She's a destroyer. Mm. And then what I started to see was like, oh, each one of her wings, she had four wings, was a different theme. Like over here was like sexual perversity. And over here was like power and control. And over here was like complete freedom because you don't have any moral boundaries. And then in each wing, there were stories and like different ways that are they all webbed to each other and she had a halo but the halo was a mirror and I was like oh right because she's a narcissist she's just like looking at herself everywhere she goes you know <laughs> um so it was like really revelatory and specific very specific right. and felt like you know usually when I had sat there with a blank page it just felt arbitrary it felt like well I could type anything but why is anything connected to anything and you know it didn't make, I didn't know why I was choosing the things that I was choosing. It was just like, I guess, but there's no arbiter of correctness mm-hmm. to tell you that that's the thing. And now that I work this way, what I really, really, really understand, and I um, coach others to think this way as well, is that there is only one story. There's just one story that is talking to me through that title. There's one story. And it's not a million stories. It's not, you know, that one story could have different variations, but all those variations are going to be, you know, a weaker version of the one that's going to be it. Right. That's going to be like the perfect, you know, the one that has the most integrity for what that story is trying to say. And if you are, if and in my mind, I picture there's one story, it's already written, it's whole. And it's just my job to have enough fortitude and clarity to hold myself as a vessel while it comes through. Mm. That's, the writer's only job right. in my mind and that's actually a big job because yeah. <laughs> it means you have to clear your right. you know all the stuff that's in the way like sure. sometimes maybe the story is about something that you're uncomfortable talking about mm-hmm. in public right. maybe it's about you know maybe it's about a part that's that's more evolved than you are and you have to evolve yourself in order to understand what that story is right. <laughs> that happens right. a lot so um but it's such a comfort to think like Oh, I'm not inventing anything. I'm listening to right. something that is brilliant already. Right. And it's coming through in this way. And it and and it's so electrifying because you can feel when it's you, you're like, oh, that's it, because it lights you on fire. And that fire is actually the fire of inspiration. And it's not only the thing that makes you want to write something, but it's also the thing that people feel when they watch the story. Right, of course. Like that fire is the exact thing that would make someone pass that viral video on. Right. You know, it's the same spark. And so if you're writing with the spark, you'll get the receiving end of the spark right. every time. I've never uh, seen that not work. And I'll tell you, I, I think it's it's not it's not just the 
it's any artist, obviously. It's it's not just the writer who's, who's the vessel. And this has been a recurring theme in, in a lot of the podcasts I've done with other artists about, and it's always been my belief, I didn't uh, develop a, a technique as specific as you where uh, I can allow, where, but, but I, I have naturally sort of, that's my bent is to allow things rather than to try and control the situation. Um, I'm much more organic. And, and, I've, and we've gone back and forth on a few podcasts about, you know, levels of control and and art versus craft and how much craft and how much art and you know um and i think that that was the most um specific and articulate way to describe excuse me what the artist does uh, you know that they're a vessel for this 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 something else this this completed piece of story this completed work that's just looking to find its way into manifest into a physical space where other people can then share it and feel the same thing. Um, and, and our job is to, to be open enough to do that. And, uh, I wonder at that point, because like I've, I've always said, I, I think, you know, art is the poetry craft is the poem. That's my sort of metaphor for it. So at what point when the poetry is coming through you and you, and now you're crafting now you've used your your images and your archetypal uh, figures and this and the sand play and the and the whole thing to get this thing to talk to you now you start to get to the craft of you know putting it in a physical space on letters on a page Hmm. does it interfere like do you feel like you're kind of getting in your own way does it float like how does that work when you actually have to apply the physical craft to it Mm, um Oh, it was, yeah, it was really cool how it happened, actually. So what I did in that first, I had that same question. I was like, all right, this is all fun and all, but how are we going to get, like, actual scenes that we can sell? Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so what happened was I, this is very magical, but I took pictures. So I I ended up doing, like, 10, 10 or 15 different sand plays around that one show, right? Each time it would come back with a different question. I'd be like, okay, tell me who the characters are, you know, and then I push play and then it would be like, oh my God. <laughs> um, and each sample, I took pictures of every single object in there. So by the end of it, I had like 40 pages of notes that were really revelations. You know, there wasn't anything, there was no junk. There wasn't like a, maybe it's this or maybe mm. it's this. It was always like, it's this. <laughs> right. And um, And I got all these pictures printed up there was probably like 200 pictures and I came, I, I had, you know, I, I had all the saturation, right. I had, I had all the saturation and it was time to like turn it over into, um, manifestation. Right. And I cleared all the furniture out of my, to the sides of the room. I put on that music again. It's like, Oh, so kind of like relaxed. And I was like, okay, now the floor is my sandbox. Mm. So, and now my question is, how does this fit into a narrative? And I had this stack of pictures and I just went through the pictures and every picture, and oh, I put tape on the floor. I was like, this is the A story. This is the B story. This is act one, mm-hmm. two, three. And I had the stack of pictures and I just went through the symbols, which each meant something really specific to me, right? And the pictures would kind of like feel like they wanted to go at a certain place. Wow. And so after like, you know, half an hour or so I had three full a story b story one act one took three in symbols Mm. in and those started i was like i could see the scenes i was Mm. like 
oh yes of course it has this like i couldn't believe it seems so obvious i couldn't believe i didn't see it from the beginning because it felt so right Right. and so then i took notes so i was starting to work with words right because i Mm -hmm. was taking notes so i wrote notes about the what i was seeing and I, i left everything that was vague i left vague and um as i would after i wrote those down i started to notice i followed the that flame of excitement and i was like what scene seems so exciting to write right now and there was like one you know (laughs) and so i started to i started to just kind of write the outline of it and then if i had a question of it i would go back to the sandbox i would be like what's this character's point of view exactly and it would give me a symbol for that. And it was like, oh, my God. So it became this, like, it's very rich. You know, just wow. got these instant answers. And I could go back and forth from the symbols to the words. Well, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're glossing over it a little bit. And I want to get into, while we have some time left, about how you teach this to people and what you're seeing when you see other people do it. But what you're, what you're glossing over is this takes a tremendous facility for intuition to, 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 not just intuition, we all have it, but to listen to it because the step you're doing it like that, that, that forebrain wants to get in the way. I would think when you're asking that question, when you're looking at that layout on the floor and you're saying, okay, what is this? What's act one, act two, act three. And you said the picture kind of wanted to go a certain place. You don't allow judgment. You let it go there. That's a very, very strong and powerful thing to do. And I would think that that must be the toughest thing for students of it is that when you get that, you ask that question, you get that feeling, even from the very top of it where you're just picking archetypal uh, uh, toys or pictures out, you never question that that's where it has to go. Like you don't stop it from doing what it's supposed to do. That's not an easy, That's not. you can't gloss over how... Um, special that is and i wonder can people can people other than you do you find them doing that can they do that as oh, well oh yeah you know what's funny everybody worries about that when they come into my studio so i give these sessions where people can come to a sand play session and i kind of guide them in the process and hands down especially the people who end up being really good at it are mm-hmm. very worried about that they're <laughs> like what if how do i know i'm attracted to that symbol and right. what if i don't know what it means and you know what if it doesn't work what if i'm the person it doesn't work for that's what every everybody thinks that when they come in here but the difference is being inside the magic and being outside the magic oh i want to actually I put that on a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> no it's like i guess this is the meaning of life right that's are right. you in the magic or yeah if you're it's almost like being high like if you're on a drug mm. if you're not on that drug you're like I don't understand why these people are thinking this is so deep and has this whole experience, right? But if you're on the drug, you're like, oh, I can see it, you know? It's not, I mean, it's, I'm not, I don't mean to like right. use drugs. As a it's okay. Drugs but are fine. There's, an, there's like a, when I say inside the magic, I mean, I'm telling you that music is so important and the tactual experience of picking up these objects is so important. Like it's it's a subtle field magic. Magic is a subtle field. Right. It's not blunt force. Right. But when you're in it, it changes everything. And the reason it's not hard when you're in the magic to follow your intuition is because it's so alluring and exciting. And when you pick up something, there's an enchantment to it. And you're mm-hmm. like, I think this is something and I'm in love with it. You're in a love state. You know, I'm so I'm so glad you said that because, like I said, this theme has come up, and I, what I've been trying to get across is that 
in the trust of that, like trusting, letting go of this sort of hanging on to, I created this, I'm controlling, that there is this gift that you get back and you're validating that for me that immediately there is something that you're like, oh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I, I had a really good therapist say once, um, we go at the speed of trust. Mm. And there's no, I don't, you, you, it's really important to not force people to believe something that they don't feel comfortable with. So if that's the, if that's the case that there's a hesitancy there, it means somewhere that the trust between them and their own creativity has been broken. Mm. And what you really need to do is just like soften the space, make sure that, you know, we're alleviating the fear state. We're really supporting it with, um, you know, guidance and, and validation in my studio. And, you know, this is a very, it's a, I created a sanctuary for exactly that reason. It, it feels good to be here. It's in nature. Yes. Um, and it, the space actually does a lot when people come in. Like it does a lot in, of the work for me. Up there in the hills like, somewhere in the... Uh, yeah, it's not a writer's room, right? right? It's like a special sanctuary place. So it's, so it's not about like, a, it's not about taking a leap of faith. It's about just noticing where the magic is and how good it feels and just going toward what feels good, which is perfectly human thing to do. We all go towards what feels good. Right. So two things. Did, did you finish that script? <laughs> that for that for, you know, how did that first? I work? did. Okay. And I did. I turned it in and, uh, to my but, agents but wait, and they wait, were like, time out, time out. What was the time frame that you finished that script? <laughs> um, well, this is very interesting. I had actually written a draft. So before, before I had, figured out this process, I had actually forced myself to write a draft of How to Love a Psychopath in the old way. Mm -hmm. And I could barely get through it. I had to hire two friends of mine to help me. Because wow. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I, this is, I can't do this. this is so I like, hired two friends of mine to just sit there while I'm like bouncing ideas off of them. Um, and it was very mediocre. That's when I was like, okay, I'm never doing this again. So, so I had a draft and that had taken me probably five, four or five, five, six months. It took a long time. It was like, it was so uncomfortable because it was all terrible. Um, and it wasn't very good. Mm. So I gave it to my manager and he's like, this is not very good. I was like, I know. <laughs> but, I, and so I was like, you know what? The only thing that's good about it is the title. And that's the only part that actually was inspired. So I'm going to throw out the entire script and I'm going to start again with a new process. And that's why then I came up with this whole thing. This took me two and a half months to write a script from nuts to bolts. So in half the time, wow. and I turned it into my agents and they were like, this is by far the best thing you've ever written. Wow. And I was like, good, because I did it by magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but in my mind, that was important because I was like, this has to stand up on a professional level. It can't just be a fanciful exploratory right. experience. Like we're here to do business. You know? Right, right. <laughs> wow. So half the time and... 10 times the result that's just pretty pretty amazing and i was couldn't wait to write more mm. which was oh. the first ever right so you you never had that feeling of uh get up i want to get up i want to get up and do something and now you did yeah or like oh, i can't wait to go to the table and see what other what is this magic like what how does it work and what else can i do with it what other kind of scripts can i write and does it work with other people? And okay, so can, now, I, can I run a writer's room like this? Like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to sell a show. Right. 
get six sandboxes, and this is all we do every day. Right. That's my plan. <laughs> right, it's a good plan. So, yeah. So almost immediately, as as is your nature, uh, the shepherd, you uh, you're looking for how this might work for other people. So when did you decide to create this space in this studio where you might say, hey, come and try this? And, and Well, I had other writer friends in crisis, and so this wasn't its own studio. Originally, it was just in my house. Right. And um, I kept bumping into people, and they're like, oh, I've been stuck on this script forever, and my agent needs it, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, I have this weird thing <laughs> set up at my house you can come try it for free. You know, I don't know if it works for anybody else, but you, you know, I, I know how it feels to be stuck. So you're welcome to come try it. So I came, so I did that for maybe half a dozen people. Mm. I'm telling you people literally leaving my house in tears of wow. catharsis. Wow. They were like, thank you. This is incredible. To this day, I see some of those people and they're like, that sample changed my life. Wow. So I was like, I really have something here and I, I would, you know, f need to figure out how to share it. So I opened sandmirrorstudio.com. Sandmirror.com if you want to check it out. That's right. I love that website too, but it's really cool. Uh, so how long, is it, how long has it been that you've been doing this now with the sand plan? I set up this studio, I think, two, year, two years ago, two and a half years ago. Two years. What are some yeah. of the, uh, other than those original people you got stuck, what are some of the more interesting, like, are they, are they all writers or are they different kinds of artists or what? Um, yeah, I've showrunners, a lot of writers, um, couple actors, um, creative directors of companies, mm. like brand, you know, people who are really in charge of brand stuff. Um, they're, wow, they're really highly creative minds. Um, commercial producers, regular producers. I have teams come in. So like I had, for example, a team come in with three writers that she had hired and they did a group sand play together, which is super interesting because sometimes one person will pick archetypes. They have no idea what they mean. But then when we talk about it afterwards, the somebody else will know what it means. Wow. So it's like this really validating of groupthink that you can actually tap into the same part of the collective psyche sure. and download a project together. Some quantum physics going on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the circle will close. Uh, it, it won't finish, but it'll close when those executives who were in the CBS uh, uh, audience come in. Yes. <laughs> you know what? I talked to some executives. I, I had this meeting. I totally agree. And that's absolutely part of my plan to take over Hollywood creativity. <laughs> but I went to this general meeting with these two executives and they were like, what have you been up to? And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to tell them. So I told them this whole <laughs> story and I was like, yeah, you know, writing is um, it's part spiritual and it's part body and part mind. I give them the whole thing. <laughs> and this is, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, never before would I ever have said anything like this. It's so taboo, you know? Mm. And they were really quiet. And I said, you know, if you buy my show, my plan is to, my first thing I would do is bring you guys in to do a sand play about why you bought this show. And whatever came through we would incorporate that in the story and this way you would become part of the creative web and not just the bad cops giving us notes wow and it would ch completely change the dynamic between executives and creatives and they were really quiet and without even looking at each other like their, like jaws were like slack right like drew like <laughs> and one of them was like we want to work with you <laughs> 
It was like I cast this spell saying the thing that they like most needed to hear, but didn't even know they needed to hear it. I and just, here was somebody. I just saw that in a, like a South Park visual somehow. I just yeah. saw that scene. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very encouraged by that because I was like, this is possible. It's really possible to change this whole. No one likes the dynamic. Mm. They, not even the executives like it, you right, know? Right. So. That's, I'm excited to see. Where I think it'll what go. yeah, I think what you're doing is, uh, you know, I got to see uh, the studio. Uh, I guess right, pretty close to the beginning. I was out there in 2018, fall of 2018, like right around this time, uh, a couple of years ago. So I saw when it was first it was put together like that. Yeah, you took the pictures that I use for yeah some promotion. Of them, yeah, it's great and uh, and just it's a fascinating. I, I didn't get a chance to do it, so I'm hoping at one point I'll get the chance to do that. Um, but uh, next time I get out there, but it, it it's just the idea of it blows my mind because it, it it like I said it articulates something that I can't articulate that I feel you know, and it's it's like a specific pathway to doing it the right way it's oh, i'm so glad very I'm so cool glad it feels yeah, that way it's very very cool so you know what? i learned something i'll just say this to yeah. wrap this part up but like the most interesting thing that i learned from the carl Jung's work is that the part of our brain that has to do with inspiration is nonverbal. Mm. it does not use language and so when we're brainstorming ideas or we're in front of a blank page trying to put language on an idea it actually, there's a short circuit because you're using the verbal part of your brain to try to express something that is still in a nonverbal state. Mm. And there, it, that's what creates writer's block a lot of times. Mm. There's, it's like, you know, it's like there's not enough, you, there's, a, there's a bridge process where it goes from nonverbal to verbal. And if we force it into verbal, it doesn't work. Mm. And the sand play is a bridge. It goes into your nonverbal and then you, you start to talk about it and put words into it the left part of your brain, the verbal part is like, oh, I understand the archetype and now I can speak about it. Wow. Yeah, you're creating bandwidth between those two hemispheres. Yeah, That's yeah. pretty neat. That's very neat. Wow. So what's, what is creatively turning you on now? Like what's the, th what, are you working on something now? Is there, is there, are there themes <clears throat> and stories you personally want to explore? Are you, are you really just, socked into shepherding people with the sample no 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 no. well i had actually the opposite problem you know before i d did it this way i would like beg for one idea that mm. felt inspired to go forward for right and now that i have this method that is pure creativity on call at any time <laughs> i actually have five ideas i've been talking to me <laughs> like i have too many ideas like i open the floodgates and i'm like oh god oh god oh god <laughs> um so I've pared it down, but the, I have the two big ideas I'm working on now, I've been working on for three years. They're epic projects. One is a 10-episode a virtual reality show, and one is a, a novel. Mm. Um, so those are what I'm working on, and they've been... A novel. Now, that's a whole other... Diff that's a different kind of writing altogether. Have you ever done that before? Any Like a, like a, a dramatic narrative novel or a... Bio yeah, it's a, it's based on a true story. I'm telling, I'm calling it a true story told through magic. So <laughs> to me, it feels completely true. But if you're not a magic believer, it may feel fictional. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a story of how I fell in love with my mother, mm. and uh, she had she went into a coma and then came out of it. Oh right, and there yeah. was a you, lot you of. And I um, talked about this. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah and uh, it was when I feel felt that I was sort of 
able to study how a miracle works because mm. she really, she, I mean, there was, no one could believe that she lived right. and fully recovered um, quickly. Mm. <laughs> Even the doctors were like, I, we don't, we don't, this doesn't happen. We don't know what this right. is. So I started to be very interested in what a miracle is and how that works, like how to work with life energy to such an extreme where you could change a reality. Right where you could pull life out of death. Mm. And um, and then in the process, she and I became very, very close. So do you start uh, with a do you start with a title on that one? Do you have a, it's you called have the deepening, the deepening. I like it. Yeah, I like that, That's, <laughs> I like that a lot. That's very no, cool. good. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, yeah. Do you ever read uh, Richard Bach's work? You know, uh, Jonathan Livingston Seagull and one. Oh, and, yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah. It, if I remember it, because I read it when I was young, uh, it, it's that kind of a thing. It's it's his life story and life lessons, but it's magical story. You know, magic sort of like that quantum physical kind of idea of changing reality. But mm. it'd be interesting to see what you thought of that. Oh so, yeah. So, um, all right. So a novel and a ten episode show, like a. It's a show, but it's for virtual reality. So you wear you have oh. to get the. Uh... Cool. headset to watch it i know believe me like you know as i said i feel like a story is talking to me and so you're sort of beholden to what that story wants right yeah and so like at the very beginning i'm like well i'm a tv writer so yeah well yeah of course we'll write a show you know writing a tv show and then it became obvious that it was like really pushing the envelope in a lot of ways this show and it was like no kate i'm not a tv show <laughs> I'm something totally new. And I'm like, oh, but what if you're just a TV show? And then we have maybe like a sister companion piece that people can buy the virtual reality part if they want to. And it was like, no, Kate, I don't think you're listening. It's a virtual reality show. I was like, I don't, not only do I know not, not know how to do that, it doesn't, the kind of things I'm writing for it to happen don't exist yet. So I'm like, it's a real, it's a real mind bender because wow. literally the technology is just coming up. So you tapped it's in. very exciting, are, but also, yeah. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you are tapped into something very special that uh, very few artists get to do. I mean, it's it, it, like I said, it's a, it's an intuitive thing, but clearly, there's like amazing stuff wanting to <laughs> express itself through you, and uh, and people around you are benefiting from, you know, the wisdom of how you do that too. So you're like hitting it on all fronts. How does that feel? Like, how's your life feel? <laughs> Are you are you in a place of love and happiness? And you know, like we left you when we when we last left Kate, when we last left Kate, she was she was Visiting buying gun stores. She was buying books on psychopaths and sleeping with gunmetal. <laughs> now I never actually bought a gun because no, I no. knew I was like, oh, but I mean, that's if they, probably a if, bad idea. If the, if the FBI was following you, they'd be like, well, let's look at her library yeah, list. Okay, yeah. it's all about psychopaths, and she's going to gun stores every day. I know. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Guys, I'm just an artist. I'm yeah. just an artist, okay? Yeah, so was Charles Manson. <laughs> I explore the dark and light extremes. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so now that we're out of the gun store and we're out of that and this wonderful stuff, how do you, how, how do you f feel? What's going on with you now? How do you feel? I am, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with my creative life. It's just, I cannot, I, I just, I'm so grateful and I am in, um, I'm, I'm in gratitude, but I'm also just in like, oh, it's not quite the right word because it's also satisfying. Like it can, 
you know, when you're in awe, you're like, you can't believe it, but I really believe it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I believe it and mm-hmm. it's here and it feels so good. Um, just the idea that I could, that I'm never going to be stuck is right. like, wow. I mean, maybe it'll take a long time to clear some stuff that I need, but I never feel like I, I'm, that it's a, I'm in a dead end, you know? So that's a huge gift. Um, and then at the same time, I feel just like I'm just starting because <laughs> I feeling. just got my feet for how to do this new way. You know, it's it's just been innovated. And then I'm sort of so I feel I guess I feel I'm evolving, but I feel that I'm where I want to be, which is like on the forefront of evolution. Right. I like it there. It's a really tenuous space, but I like it. Yeah. And so it's really it's only good. a few doors down from nude modeling in the East Village. <laughs> it's really, if you think about it, it's just it's just a couple blocks over. The nude modeling here and then there's sand playing over there. It's both were satisfying. That's both right. were satisfying. Absolutely. Well, Kate, this has been super fantastic. I am so I I always love talking to you cuz th- this is the kind of stuff we talk about and it's it's great. I'm glad that I I'll be able to get to share you with uh <laughs> whoever's listening <laughs> whoever's, whoever ends up watching uh but i but i have a feeling that just attaching you to this just with that little magic you got on your i think i'm going to get a lot of uh, benefit out of that for myself and i'm glad everybody oh, gets man. to see it so uh, i hope i can get out there uh, soon or you come back here soon and and i can uh, and i can try that uh, uh stuff and yeah and, and work yeah. on it and and anytime and, and that'd be just be great to, to work together again at some point that's not uh in a fake van doing fake surveillance of my <laughs> fake wife. <laughs> you never know if we, you know, download a story together. We that's might right, just, it might right, be like right. the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I can't wait for that. So this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, uh, Thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll have you as a regular guest every now and we'll put you on and, and you'll talk about what you're doing and, and sure. plug anything sure. you want to plug. Love that. Cool. Thank you, Kate. You're welcome.